Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yea, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who holds the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated, friends. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, As we come now to the preaching of your word, we ask that you would do what no preacher can do. We pray that you would come this morning, that you would speak to us through your word. All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, one God now, forever. Amen. The church is the anvil that has worn out many hammers. An anvil is is the thing that blacksmiths smash nearly molten metal against with with their hammers. Or, you might better know it as the thing that's constantly falling on Wile E. Coyote's head, uh, depending on your age. The church is the anvil that has worn out many hammers. Are you familiar with this proverb? It is, of course, not a biblical proverb. It's not from the book of Proverbs. Rather, it's a proverbial saying, a saying that is profoundly true. Despite the best efforts of Nero and Domitian, the church survived while the Roman Empire fell. Despite the best efforts of Robespierre, even while the first French Revolution failed, the church survived. Despite the best efforts of Lenin and Mao and Stalin, the church survived the communist revolution and lives on in communist countries. See, friends, no matter how hard they swung their hammer, it was not the anvil that was worn out. The church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. And the beauty of this proverb, why I love it so much, is it is multidimensional. What I mean is that as you examine it like a gemstone through different facets, you actually see deeper levels of truth that this proverb is communicating. At the root of it is a simple truth that anvils are enduring, which is true. They're designed to endure lifetimes of hot metal smashed against them with all the skill and force of an expert blacksmith. In fact, anvils were often passed down from a father to a son who took on his trade. It is nearly impossible to wear one out. Sometimes, however, anvils do break. They don't break in the way that we break a pair of shoes or that the brakes on our car break. 
you don't wear one out. No, what almost always happens is in the forging process of that anvil, there was a small inclusion inside. Or perhaps it just wasn't at the right heat and so the metal didn't bond together properly. Either way, what happens is a crack begins to form. And once that crack has moved to the outside, unless it can be repaired, the anvil is worthless. It has no more structural integrity. It cannot do what it was designed to do. And it is through this lens of the proverb that we come to the point of our text today. Internal corruption is more damaging than external persecution. Internal corruption is more damaging than external persecution. Before we get to our points today, I just want you to take a moment and consider the reality of that. Do you realize what this means, friends? It means that you and I have the potential to be far more damaging to the church than any oppressive government leader ever could be. If internal corruption is really more damaging than external persecution, then you and I are actually a greater threat to the church than an oppressive government. It is a sobering reality. It is what our text holds forth today. Internal corruption is more damaging than external persecution. And we will see this unfold in three movements. First, the external persecution, verses 12, 13. Second, the internal corruption, verses 14 and 15. And finally, the final adjudication, verses 16 and 17. The external persecution, the internal corruption, and the final adjudication. Let's begin with the external persecution, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, if you've been here or even been keeping up with the sermons that Pastor Craig has been preaching, then you already know who it is that is speaking. But to make sure we're all on the same page, let me lay it out for everyone. This is Jesus. This is the glorified Christ speaking to John, telling him what to write and to whom to write, which is evident in our passage as Jesus refers to himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, which is a clear callback to chapter 1, verse 16, where Jesus is seen with seven stars in his hand and a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. We must ask now, why this illusion? Why not the one who holds the seven stars? Why not the one with radiant white hair? Why the one with the sword? Because it was especially meaningful to the church in Pergamum. You say, Riker, why is that? It's because the church in Pergamum was a seat of Roman power, especially in Asia. It was where the proconsul of Asia resided. It is where he wielded the sword of Roman authority from, both literally and figuratively. So Jesus is meaning to draw the eyes of his audience up away from the figurative swords wielded by those who attempt to enforce paganism through decrees and away from the literal swords of the Roman soldiers whose job it was to enforce those decrees. It is one reason why Jesus refers to Pergamum as where Satan's throne is, verse 13. I know where you dwell, 
where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Satan here is at least partially being used to refer to the Roman government. In addition to being the dwelling place of the proconsul, Pergamum was also the first place in Asia to ever have a temple specifically designed to worship the Emperor Augustus. It is where the adversary dwells. In a very real sense, it is where his throne is. And yet, they held fast. Even when one of their own brothers was murdered. We know nothing more from church history about Antipas, except for what is here. He was martyred in Pergamum. Jesus need not say anything more than his name and that he was a faithful witness because the congregation knew him. Let's not skip over this. There are two challenges for us here. Do you know your brothers and sisters around you right now well enough that they would know you by the mention of your name? I'm not asking if you hang out with people often. I'm not asking if you would define yourself as an extrovert. I'm asking if you live in community as Christ lived in community. Because dear friends, this is your community. To be sure, you have others, workplaces, friend groups, kids' sports teams, perhaps even hobbies, support groups. But here, this group right here, they are the people with whom you have covenanted to support and to be supported by as you hold fast to the gospel. How are you doing at that? I would encourage you to dive headfirst into community. Make home groups a priority. Make every effort to attend ministries that the church puts forth, not to fill up your calendar with church stuff, but to take every chance given to care for your brothers and sisters and to be cared for. I, I want to be abundantly clear. This is not about going to all of the things. This is not about patting yourself on the back or being a better saint than other saints because you go to the stuff. That's not what it is at all. It is a genuine and sober reality that everything that you have, every life, every moment of life, every breath, every beat of your heart is a gift from God. And an acknowledgement of that that is expressed in a willingness to care for his people. How well do you do this? And second, how well do you hold fast? Currently, we in no way face imprisonment or martyrdom for our faith. Thanks be to God for that. But that does not mean that you do not face real pressures from our society and a culture that are ardently anti-Christian. Do you lovingly and winsomely live out your faith? Again, friends, this is not about if you vote for the right person. I'm asking if the communities that you interact with are more Christian because you were there. Do you hold fast in the midst of societal and social pressures? The church in Pergamum did. And Christ commended them for it. They held fast in the face of external persecution. Friends, the church in Pergamum, just like us, it's not perfect.
So while Christ does commend them for their endurance, it's not all he has to say to them. Nor is it all that the, he and the Spirit have to say to us this morning. So look with me now as Christ addresses their internal corruption, our second movement, internal corruption, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. The teaching of Balaam? The teaching of Balaam? What on earth is John getting at here? What does he mean, the teaching of Balaam? If you recall, Balaam is a character in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Numbers. And he is a fascinating character because he's a Gentile. And yet, in the Old Testament world as a Gentile, he's somehow also a prophet of the living God. And if you remember the story, as Israel is moving into their promised land, their victories begin to stack up. And Balak, king of Moab, realizes that he and his people are next on the chopping block. So he entices Balaam to journey to him so that he might prophesy against Israel. And famously on that journey when in a narrow canyon, the angel of the Lord, that is the pre-incarnate Christ, stands and blocks the way to the canyon with his sword not in his mouth, but in his hand pointed at Balaam, who is blind to see it. But after being rebuked by his donkey and the Lord himself, Balaam eventually makes it to Balak. But he's unable to prophesy against Israel. Hell-bent on working against God's people, Balaam comes up with a clever idea. He decides that Balak should introduce Moabite women into Israelites' camp. And it works to great effect. Because internal corruption is more damaging than external persecution, Israel begins engaging in pagan worship. They eat food sacrificed to idols and they practice sexual immorality until Phineas puts a stop to it by use of his spear. And ultimately, Balaam would meet his end at the end of a sword, not wielded by the pre-incarnate son, but rather by a member of Israel's army. Okay, so why this illusion? Why bring Balaam into this? Because the church in Pergamum is doing exactly what Israel was doing at that time. Verse 15. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. A church history tells the Nicolaitans were a religious sect that was started by one of the first deacons of the church. You meet him in the book of Acts. And the story goes that he was so enamored with his wife and her beauty that he decided that it would be sinful for him to keep his wife only for himself. And so he began to practice what many people in 2023 practice. And he gave full marital access to his wife to anyone. Now, I don't think that this thing is really a problem in our congregation. It's possible, but I really doubt it. I think actually that it, it strikes us as bizarre, that we say, how could someone possibly do that? It commits violence against one of our vital beliefs. And it's shocking to us. But what about a father, a husband, 
who regularly drinks to the point of drunkenness. Is that less shocking? What about a young Christian woman who lives with her boyfriend? Is that less shocking? What about someone who is trapped in depression and feels like a failure because they cannot meet the arbitrary standards of what they think a Christian should look like? Is that less shocking? What about a divorce because both parties just felt that they grew apart and became different people? Is that less shocking? My dear friends, they ought not be less shocking. There are potential blind spots that we've developed because of our culture. And if we are honest with ourselves, at our worst moments, we have some among us who hold to the teaching of the hedonists, some who hold to the teaching of the antinomians, some who hold to the teachings of legalism, some who hold to the teaching of the existentialists. And if we are really and fully honest with ourselves, in our worst moments, you are those ones. You have rationalized away your own sins. It's just a picture on a screen. It doesn't hurt anyone. I wasn't gossiping or grumbling. I just needed to vent. Or perhaps, what can be even more damaging, you dwell on your sins and are so fixated on your failures that you forget to draw your eyes up to the one who knows all of your failings, who knows failings you aren't even aware of and who loves you anyways. So what can we do? What can we do when we find ourselves rationalizing away our own sins? We find ourselves fixating on our sins. When we realize that we are the source of internal corruption, what can we do? Find our answer in verse 16. Our third and final movement, the final adjudication. Therefore, repent. My dear brothers, my dear sisters, it is not too late. If you have breath in your lungs this morning, then it is not too late. And if you find yourself in corruption, if you have failed to hold fast, Christ is calling you through his word right now, this morning, to repent. He himself is warmly welcoming you to come to him, to lay the burden of your guilt at his feet. We often think of repentance as a harsh call, confrontational. Friends, this is the farthest thing from harsh. This is not yet judgment of your guilt. This is a call from Christ himself. This is the one who is tempted in every way, who can empathize with your temptation, yet he alone perfectly resisted. This is a call from the Son of God who said that his yoke is easy and his burden light. This is a call from the one who left the splendor and majesty of heaven to become gentle and lowly. The one who washed the disciples' feet. This is a call to repentance from the one who made it possible that you could repent. The one who bore the penalty and judgment for these very sins that he is calling you out of. The one who truly and fully loves you. In spite of everything in you that tells you that you aren't worthy of any love, let alone his love. He is the one who hung on the cross for you. The one who took his life back up, giving you new life. The one who even now is at his father's right side, interceding for you. Beloved of God. Hear the voice of the suffering servant, the good shepherd, the promised deliverer, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and repent. Embrace Christ and turn away from all the lies the world offers. Because this is an offer of complete and total forgiveness. And the only other option 
is to oppose Christ. Friends, you must understand that the suffering servant is also the snake crusher. The good shepherd is the Lord of all. The promised deliverer is the conquering king. And the Lamb of God is the judge of all. The rest of our passage now. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There are ultimately only two options. Either you rest in perfect communion with Christ, not because of your actions or earning, but because he did it on your behalf, or you were judged by Christ. The one who spoke and brought all into existence will war against you with the sword of his mouth. Dear friends, we are now speaking of judgment. And to call this harsh is missing the point entirely and then putting it lightly. This is the one by whom and for whom you were created, charging you with your real and actual wrongs. This is not harsh the way that we think of harsh. This is proper judgment. It is the fate of those who refuse to relent, those who refuse to bend the knee and repent. But for those who do repent, for the one who conquers by Christ, to the one who holds fast and is held fast, instead of judgment, is offered the very presence of Christ. There is much disagreement among scholars as to what these images and symbols here are getting at, especially this white stone with a name on it. Some suggest that this is a secret name that you have. And they present all sorts of very well-reasoned arguments from common first century cultural practices to support their position. With all due respect to these scholars, I do not believe that these symbols are so disjointed. That is to say, I do not think that the secret manna is getting at something wholly and entirely different from what the white stone is getting at. I do not think one is drawing an image from the tabernacle and the other from the surrounding pagan culture of the first century. I believe this is a holistically biblical image drawn on historical, on the historical worship of Israel. I believe this is supposed to draw our minds back to the image of the high priest coming into God's presence. This hidden manna is manna that rained down from heaven to feed God's people in the Exodus. It was collected according to God's decree and sorted the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments, which was in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. And it was in this room that God himself dwelt with his people to be sure, but in a very, very real way separated from his people. Only one man could enter that room and only once a year. Only the high priest, only on the day of atonement and only to make atonement. As he did so on his breastplate were 12 stones with the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on them. And a pouch that contained the Urim and the Thummim, which many Jewish scholars believe were stones that had the name of God engraved on them. So what is John getting at here with this imagery? I think simply well-known Jewish imagery that pointed forward to Christ. He is the bread of life come down from heaven for all of God's people. He is the very name and image of the invisible God revealed to us. 
So to the one who conquers, to those who know the new name of God, that is Emmanuel, God with us, a stone with his name, symbolizing Christ, and the secret manna, which again is Christ, are given to the conqueror. So friends, what do you have to look forward to? Complete and perfect communion with God, with no need for sacrifice because Christ has done it all for you. It is finished. When he had made a single sacrifice of himself, he sat down at the right hand of the Father because our high priest has no further work of atonement to complete. The curtain is torn in two and we are called into the very presence of God even now. Not yet perfectly. We do not yet experience it fully, but someday, someday we will. So persevere, dear friend. Hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Hear the voice of Christ lovingly calling you to repent and run to him. May we be a people who repent of our sins and hold fast to the truth. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for the great hope that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray that as a congregation, we would always keep that the forefront priority of everything that we do, that you would be glorified because of it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.